0: Amen. Amen. Let's thank the Lord. Let's thank our choir for leading us in worship. Thank you. As we were praying before service, one of our prayers was that the Lord will touch you uh, and all of us through various aspects of the service, through the sermon, through the reading of the word, through the singing of songs and hymns and spiritual songs, that all of this is a canvas by which God meets his people. And so I pray that if your heart is broken, or life is hard, that these reminders of truth would uh, flood your soul and encourage you in the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to follow along in Acts chapter 16. We're going to look at the whole chapter. I'm going to take some time to read it and would love for you to follow along with me Uh, By by way of introduction, this is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. So for the next several weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, his stops in various cities as the gospel begins to go out to the ends of the earth. Acts 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And they went through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So Paul, passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. and it came out of her that very hour. But when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, the jailer put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was an earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then they brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go and the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to you to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who were Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out to prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers and sisters, they encouraged them and they departed. Amen, let's pray together. Father, your word is truth and it is relevant today in the here and now. Is this not a story or a tale of some things that happened then that have no bearing upon your church now? Your spirit which inspired Luke to write these words is alive and well and would have us, Lord, to believe what is revealed here about you. You would have us conform our behavior and conduct to what we see here in the text. You would have us, Lord, to examine our hearts and to bring our sin before you and to repent and to endeavor a new obedience. You would have us, Lord, to make much of you and your son and your spirit as we unpack your text would you would you do all of this and build your people up and magnify your name in our sight we pray oh jesus amen i've entitled our time the church winsome witnesses serving a great god the first time i was on an airplane i was a senior in high school and at Jim Hill, uh, our language teachers decided to take us on a trip to Italy. And so the first time I was on a plane was on that trip. And providentially, I sat right next to the airplane engine. And for hours and hours, I sat and looked at the engine. How can this machine fly us through rain and sleet and snow over oceans to another continent? How can this machine, that if the other one breaks down, this one engine can still fly us? Like the the Lord used that to awaken this how in my heart. How does this work? How was this made? That it led me to go to Alabama A&M and to major in mechanical engineering because I was pursuing the how and at Alabama A&M, we had professors who had been in the aerospace industry and they taught us the how, but it was all theoretical. And then one day we returned from a trip to Baltimore. The National Society of Black Engineers had a conference and I floated my resume out to everyone who would take it. And I get a call from a woman named Karen Clark who works for GE Aircraft Engines. How would you like to come work up here where we make engines? How soon can I start? And there I was, now a 21-year-old, standing inside of a GE90 engine, and for the next four and a half years of my life, it was the pursuit of how. Have you ever had something that arrested your attention that made you want to know how? Maybe it was when you laid eyes on your spouse, and you're like, how did you get here, girl? How can I get to know you better? How can we spend some time together? Maybe, maybe that was the how. Or maybe it's a land cruiser. H- how can they last 350,000 miles? How? Right? right what's behind it? Or maybe it's, it's a restaurant. You go to a great restaurant and, the, and your waitress or waiter brings out this dish and you take one bite and it's a how. Like how did you combine those flavors and cook this this way that you're serving me this? Can you please tell me how? or maybe it's a couple and they've been married 60 years and you've been married 60 months and you're in a hard season and you want to know how, like how did y'all make it? Or maybe someone almost blew up their lives with an addiction and you see them come through it and they make it and you are wondering, how did it happen, what worked? Or maybe someone you know is single and celibate and it does not look like me marriage is on their forecast and you are in that place and you are wondering how like how do I make it through life with these longings and these desires but I want to be cruciformed and lay them at the feet of Jesus can you just tell me how has something awakened your heart to make you want to know how you see I'm convinced when you read Acts 16 if we read it with the eyes of faith and really see what's here, we ought to want to know how, how in the world can this woman who is wealthy, who has a home and servants, how can she meeting Paul and his team out of one meeting just say, here, have my house, you strangers, come stay in my house? How? How? How can this woman who is a slave girl who is possessed by demons, how can in one moment she is free and in her right mind and John Stott and Tim Keller and numerous other scholars say that because these her her story is lodged in the middle of Lydia and the jailer that we should probably read into this that she too is converted and is a part of the church? How can this jailer who was so about that life, y'all, that when he thought the prisoners were gone, he would take his own life before he lets his superior take his. How is he now washing the wounds of the people that he was supposed to be protecting? And how do somehow they all end up, this disparate group, In the same church, John Stott says it will be hard to imagine a more disparate group than a wealthy businesswoman, a slave girl and a jailer racially, socially, psychologically and personally, they were worlds apart. Yet all three were changed by the same gospel and welcomed into the same church. When we read this in this finished picture, we ought to want to know how. This is the type of church that Jesus is building from his ascended state. This is the type of church that Jesus wants us to be and if we stop and sit with this big glorious hard lovely but possible vision we ought to want to know how and what i want to submit to you this morning the same how of act 16 is the same how for us here and now if you long for and want Redeemer to be this kind of church attracting these types of people who come from all types of stories and mess and brokenness and histories and cultures and ethnicities. If you want this church to be that, we ought to be looking at Acts 16. Show us how it happened, Lord. And here's what I want to tell you. The first reason this happened is because winsome witnesses worked. Winsome witnesses worked. Now, sermons play a huge part in the book of Acts. Matter of fact, if you go back and read Acts 1 through 15, you're going to see a lot of sermons. Peter speaks a sermon in Acts 2. It's 24 verses, y'all. In Acts 7, Stephen preaches a sermon. It's 51 verses. It takes you 10 minutes just to read Stephen's sermon. Paul's sermon in Acts 13 is 31 verses. Luke, in other words, is making certain that when we think about being witnesses, that Luke is telling us the content of the witnesses, that as we go and speak the truth, as we go and are his witnesses, there is a theme, there is a story, there is a majesty of Jesus that we have to bring to bear. And Luke says, let me show you from Paul, from Peter, from Stephen, they're all talking about Jesus. But there's a different emphasis in 16. If you scan Acts 16, there is no lengthy sermon. It says that we spoke to the women. What what did you say? I don't know. Luke didn't include that. Well, we spoke to the jailer. This is like a short sermon. Believe in Jesus, you will be saved. You and your household, he believed, pack it up. We might as well go home if it was that easy all the time. It says they went into the home of the jailer and declared the word to them. Well, what word did they declare? Luke, don't tell us. And you guys, this is by design. Here's what I mean. Look at the shift in pronouns in verses six through nine. It says they were forbidden. The spirit did not allow them. They went to Troas. But look at verse 10. When Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia. We made a direct voyage. We remained in the city. What? First you're talking about them and they, and now you're saying we, what, what's the deal? Luke, the one who is writing Acts, did not join Paul until this chapter. It was they. And so everything that Luke is writing up to this point is through listening to other people. Peter, you preached a sermon. Tell me what you preached. Let me see your manuscript. Stephen, you preached a sermon. He's dead. Who all was there? Who heard it? I need to put it in here in detail. But in Acts 16, this isn't hearsay. Luke is there for it. And so Luke makes the point not to tell us what was preached. You know what his focus is in Acts 16? It's not the content of the witnesses. It's the conduct of the witnesses. There's boldness in this section. Paul challenges the political leaders. But I think what Luke would want us to see that the reason this worked was because the witnesses were winsome and tender and compassionate and humble. That what we're about to see, Paul and his team repeatedly lay their plans, their comforts, their personal interests down for the good of others and the glory of God. Now, I wanna show you this six different ways. Look at sections one, verses one through five. We're told about Timothy. Timothy is a believer. He was discipled by his mother and his grandmother, which is what Paul later tells us in the book of Timothy, uh, that he was discipled by Lois and Eunice. And we believe his dad was a pagan. It doesn't say he was a God-fearer. It doesn't say he was a proselyte. He was a Greek. And guess what his Greek dad didn't do? He didn't let Timothy get circumcised, even though he was part Jew and part Gentile. And Timothy's dad was probably very powerful because it says that all the Jews in that region knew his dad. Now, think about this. Think about what Brian preached last week about the letter that Paul had in his back pocket about the the decision that was made in Jerusalem. You do not have to submit to circumcision. But then did you see what Paul does right here? He got a letter in his pocket saying you don't have to do it, but then he actually does it. Now why? Why would he do it when he doesn't have to? Why doesn't he go in there and say, You Jews, he's half Gentile, half Jewish, I got a letter, I don't have to circumcise him. Why does he do it? Why does Timothy, who's a a, 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 a grown man, let another grown man like circumcise him? Why? Because he doesn't want to cause a fanfare with the Jews. Paul is like, I love you Jews. And if me carrying this uncircumcised, half Jew, half Gentile is going to distract you from hearing my message, then guess what I'll do? I'll circumcise him myself. That is humility. That is him loving them more than the freedom he has not to do it. That's humility. You see it in them laying down their missionary plans. Paul tells us, he says, look, what I really wanted to do was to go into Asia. And if not Asia, I want to go into Bithynia. And you know what? The Holy Spirit says, nope, nope. And you know how Paul ends up in Philippi, ends up in Macedonia. He ends up there because of a vision. And the vision of a man saying, Paul, come to Macedonia. In other words, what you're seeing is that Paul is not leading the charge in missions. Paul is following God in missions. He's ambitious, but his ambition serves God's agenda. There's a lot of books written on leadership. What you read in Acts. Missions happen through followership. Paul is laying down where he wants to go for where God is working. There is humility, you all, in his treatment of women. When they made it to Philippi, Paul's normal practice, let me go find a synagogue on the Sabbath day and reason with the Jews. Paul lands in Philippi and guess what? It doesn't appear that there is a Jewish synagogue. Now, Jewish law says that you have to have 10 men to form a synagogue. And so when Paul goes to this place that he presumes the synagogue would be, guess what? There are no men there, only women. Now, hold that thought. What was the prevailing view of women? Pharisees used to pray, Lord, I thank you. I'm not a Gentile and I'm not a woman. Even though... On the Sabbath night, Proverbs 31 will be saying to women, what you have in the culture of Paul's day is a degradation of women. It's not biblical. It's wrong. Together, the image of God is fleshed out in male and female. For us to be who God calls us to be, it's men and women co-laboring in the kingdom together. But the prevailing view of the day, at least I'm not a woman. And what does Paul do when he goes and finds women gathered at the prayer meeting? Does he say, all right, Lord, I'm coming back when you give me some men. Does he say, ah, do I really got to do this right now? No. He sits down, preaches the gospel. Women come to faith. Lydia is baptized. And she says, here, Paul, here's my house. It says that she prevailed upon us. You know what that word means to prevail? It means that this was not popular culturally. It means that this may not have been what Paul had in mind when he shows up in Philippi. Maybe he thinks this is going to be just like Cyprus or Antioch, that when I show up, there are some mighty men, and he shows up, and there are mighty women. And Paul's like, okay, let's do this. Do you know how countercultural that would have been? It's because he's tender, and he's humble you see it with his treatment of the slave girl, that that it says that she has the spirit of divination. In the Greek, it's the spirit of Python, which is, we have a snake called Python. And so when we look at this, she is possessed by demons, by the evil one. And it says that Paul was greatly annoyed. The ASV says he was greatly troubled or grieved. It says that every time they went to the place of prayer, which he went to the place of prayer on the Sabbath. He did this for She did this for many days. She tormented them, which means that she did this for many weeks because his practice was to go to the place of prayer on the Sabbath. So for many weeks, she's tormenting them. And then he's grieved. And he says, Satan, you come out. Demons, you come out. He is tender, he is compassionate. You see it with the jailer. Peter has a jail scene, Paul has a jail scene. Peter gets an angel of the Lord who comes to free him. Guess what Paul gets? Paul gets an earthquake. Peter is in prison sleeping, doing something that we would not expect if you're about to die, and Paul and them is singing hymns and praying, and they're all shackled in the inner recesses of of the prison, and the Lord sends an earthquake, and you would think if you were reading Acts that the earthquake means, hey, we can get up out of here, but then something happens. This man is about to take his life. He's about to lay on his sword if a single prisoner is out. And you know what Paul says? Paul says, brother, don't. I value your life more than I value our freedom. And we could go. We could be out of here so fast. Your shackles can't keep us in, but I love your life more than I love my freedom. We're all going to stay. And it gets better, y'all. The same people who mistreated Paul and beat them and left him for dead, who locked him up, the magistrates of the city, they did him so dirty. He was a Roman citizen. He didn't even get a trial. They didn't even investigate. Them dudes was just trifling because their profiting scheme was over with. Paul says, no, you tell them to come let us out. But did you notice what happened when they came and apologized? They said, Paul, get out of our city. What did Paul do? Did he go to the magistrate's house and start a revolt? Did he stir the city in uproar? No. It says he went to find Lydia and the brothers and sisters and then he left. What? That's him submitting himself to the evil people who just treated him dirty. You see what Luke is saying? That it was their winsomeness, it was their humility, it was their tenderness that enabled them to love the world to life. This time of year, you'll probably notice that your FedEx, UPS, and postal workers are going to be working really long hours. Sun up to sundown, carrying boxes, unloading packages. You can understand if they aren't the friendliest, right? But they're a song, and they've gone viral because the way in which they serve you. It's impeccable. There are some postmen who don't carry mace. What they carry in their pocket is doggy treats. And when your dog barks at them, they give them treats. There's some postmen and UPS workers, when your son is outside playing basketball by himself, that they stop the UPS truck and they get out there and shoot baskets with your son. There are some postal workers who see that you're a single mother and your son barely has this goal and they see him out there working on his game and you know what they do? They take a collection to buy your son a new goal. There are some people who deliver the mess, who deliver the, the mail and they do it with joy. They dance and you can see him on your ring camera. There are some people who bring packages and they knock on the door if you're elderly and they don't just drop your package at the door. They bring it in your house because you're vulnerable and what you have uh, coming to you, they want to make sure you have. And do you know how the world responds to people who do that? You record them and you repost the way that they do their work, your dogs wag their tails when Mr. Postman shows up. That's a picture of what's happening in this passage. Paul is not simply, hey, hear the gospel, get it, we gone. (laughs) That ain't how he rolling. He is tender and present, the manner in which He's ministering the word is magnetizing. And I think we need to hear that. PCA folk can be some mean people. It's all doctrine. We gotta say the right thing. No homeboy, you need to live the right way. Can you be nice? Can you smile? Can you listen? Can you be patient? These are the soft things that no one wants to talk about, but they're making the world of difference in Philippi. It's not what they do. It's how they're going about their work winsomely. This is how we love our city to life. It's not just having right doctrine. It's actually by caring and listening. And being welcoming and humble and laying things down for the sake of those who don't know Jesus. This is why Peter says, he doesn't just say, be ready to give an, uh, an answer. He says, but do it with gentleness, do it with goodness. If we would see this, we must work winsomely. Secondly, a great God must do his great work. Now, I wanna relieve the tension because I think we can do everything right and with humility and it still does not mean that people come to faith. That's what you see in the passage. You never hear about the slave girls owners coming to faith, you never hear about the magistrates coming to faith, and so do not hear me saying, be humble, be winsome, preach the good news, And the world's gonna come knocking at the door nope luke tells us in verse verses 13 through 15 we sat down and spoke to the woman to the women who had come together one who heard was lydia the lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by paul you hear that anybody who comes to jesus only comes because the father draws they only come because the father opens their heart because the father removes the scales because the father unplugs the ears and so what luke is showing us is that these two things are working in tandem and our work is important but god's work is ultimate and what luke is doing beloved is stretching our view of god's work in this passage consider the power of God in salvation that no one is beyond his reach Lydia is close to the kingdom at a Bible study and she meets Jesus. The slave girl is actually possessed by demons and she meets Jesus and the jailer is seconds from committing suicide and he meets Jesus. You hear what God is saying? Ain't nobody beyond my reach, no situation too big, no person too lost that when I open their hearts that they won't come. This is God's power in salvation. This is how this is happening. It's because God is doing his great work. Consider the wisdom of God in salvation. Do you know that all of these stories are intertwined? The jailer comes to faith because Paul has been thrown into prison. Why has Paul been thrown into prison? Because the slave girl was was prophesying and her handlers hated that, so that's the reason he lands in prison. Well, where did the slave girl interrupt and intercept Paul? It's when he was going to teach the women. You see all of that? God is using the women And the slave girl to save the jailer. He is that big and that glorious that he weaves our lives together and our circumstances and things that we think are mundane. It's not mundane. God is a big God whose ways are above our ways. Consider the the, the covenantal aspect of salvation. Did you know that the passage begins and ends with Lydia being converted And it says her and her household. She is a boss. She's probably a widow who makes a ton of money, who got servants and maybe some kids. And it says that her and her whole household, and then the jailer at the end of the book, him and his whole household. Why does he put this, why does he bracket chapter 16 with whole household conversions, whole household baptisms? Why? Because God is a God of the family and the covenant family, and God is doing what god has been doing all the way back to abraham remember what abraham god says out you your sons born of you and your servants acquired by you everyone in your household so it makes perfect sense that when the gospel begins to go to the gentiles god says yeah what you saw in Genesis, the way that I love Israel I ain't changed. And when the gospel goes to you Gentiles is going out covenantally. That's why we baptize our children. That's why we baptize our households because God's love for us and our children and our children's children, it extends to a thousand generations. And I know it gets hard. I know we get kids, and it doesn't look like they're walking with Jesus. And it breaks our hearts. Here's something I came across this week. Not one of your covenant children is too far gone for God's grace to be able to reach him or her. Never allow the adversary to sow a lie in your mind to the contrary. No matter how great her sin, no matter how hard his heart, no matter how firm her resolve, no matter how strident his tongue, no matter how advanced in her years, our Lord can work the miracle of a conversion for a covenant child in the blink of an eye. So keep praying. Keep praying with hope. He is a covenant keeping God. You see the scope of God's salvation that touches more than a sinner's status with God. Dr. Keller says, once the heart is open to God, your resources, your wallets, your possessions, and home are all open to him as well. And that's what you see. Lydia, her heart is open, and guess what? Her front door is as well. This jailer, his heart is open, now the one who is over the prison is washing the wounds of the prisoner. That's the scope of God's salvation. You also see that God's salvation breaks oppressive systems that are evil. This girl who was a slave, who was owned by multiple men, Who made money off of her. Prophesying. Who led people away from the light. When the gospel goes through Philippi. It frees her. And it bankrupts that system. That they were profiting off of. Jesus' kingship does not only include you getting to heaven when you die. It includes overturning evil and wickedness right here and now. This is how Luke is stretching our view of God's great work. The reason this all happens is because God is on the move. Now, I'm going to close with this. How? How has this worked in our hearts? You got two sides of this. You got the God side, where God is on the move, God is opening hearts. I'm not God, and you're not God, and we can't make God do what we want. We can pray and we can petition him, but he is God. But, beloved, we can work at being more winsome and more humble and more tender. Now, how does that happen? Let me let you in on a secret. This happens in the city of Philippi. Does that name sound familiar? Isn't there a whole other book of the Bible called Philippians? Yep. And in Philippians, guess where Paul is? In prison. And he says, don't y'all worry. I'm in prison. And y'all, y'all already know the deal. I was in prison there and people got saved. I'm in prison over here. And the whole imperial guard, they come into faith in Jesus. I'm good. Y'all don't worry about me. Just keep praying. But there is this one thing you can do for me. This is the one thing you can do for me. In my absence, you can complete my joy. By doing what, Paul? By doing nothing from selfish ambition. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interests, but the interests of others. Don't that sound just like what Paul just showed us in this passage? In other words, what Paul is telling them, keep doing what I was doing. Well, how? Paul, how can we do it? You know what he says? Have this mind in you, which is already yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He was found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. Paul says that's how you do it. It's not about focusing on missions. You commune with your master. And as you commune with your master, it is his tenderness that leads you to mercy. It is you being overwhelmed that he was God, but he laid some things aside to become a servant, to become your bond servant. This is Jesus who tells the father, I will go into the prison if you let them out. This is Jesus saying, Father, tell me where to go, tell me what to do, tell me how to do it. I count their lives more valuable than, I, uh, than my own. You see, when we commune with him and just sit with that and meditate upon him, We become like him. We grow in humility. We grow in tenderness. We learn to die to ourselves for the sake of others. That's how we work at becoming winsome. It's being with Jesus. Paul says in Philippians that as you do this, as you are blameless, Without blemish in this crooked and twisted generation, you will shine like lights in the world. hear that? You will start to stand out. Think about this image of lights. There are some insects, they love darkness. You ever seen a roach? (laughs) You turn the lights on a roach and they're found out, they don't stay in the light. They scurry back to a crevice or a corner. They love darkness. But there are some insects that love light. Go turn your front porch on at night. And go watch your, the, 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 the lights outside. And you see all of these other insects. They don't scurry in the darkness. They're looking for light. And scientists think that, that, that the, the insects are getting confused. They think this might be the sun. And so they're looking for light. They're looking to be in the light. And here's the thing, beloved. Some folks in this world are like cockroaches. They love darkness and they scurry but some people are looking for light. And when you are with the light and your light is shining in the world and we're growing in humility, the world wags its tail waiting for us to show up. That's what I want for us. May the Lord by the gospel, by communing with Jesus, make us tender and make us soft and maybe he'll be pleased to continue to do a work like this let's pray father we love you we bless you we thank you for your word i pray holy spirit that you would apply it to our hearts i'm gonna take my seat here in a minute and we're gonna go our separate ways but holy spirit our hearts are free reign for you Continue to work your word in us, conform us to your image, forgive us of our pride, forgive us of grabbing hold of rights. Lord, make us like Christ who became a servant to rescue the world. Do this for your sake and your glory. Amen.